Let me begin with a question, as I usually do. When's the last time you experienced the sheer joy, the sheer joy and peace of steadfastness? And what I mean by steadfastness is just a, a stability, a, a peace, a calmness, uh, in, in the best sense, a predictability, no surprises. Just to start off lighthearted, to tell a story of not experiencing steadfastness, starting off as steadfastness, but then not steadfastness with my daughter, uh, is when she was going into junior kindergarten. And we were preparing her to transition, to uh, go to school, junior kindergarten, the backpack, everything, first day, outfit, all that. Uh, and we were, usually the, the stereotype is, what usually happens is that there's a lot of crying children, first day of junior kindergarten. And so we were building her up, getting her mentality ready, and she was having actually a very courageous, positive attitude. She went in, no crying, no separation anxiety. And then when I went to go pick her up and she came out, I said, Dad, junior kindergarten was easy, <laughs> right? And I uh, started being suspicious about what she meant by that. And it's like, you know that there's another 200-so days of junior kindergarten, right? It wasn't just today. It's like, what? <laughs> and then from that day, the next few weeks, separation, anxiety, crying, and so forth. And so both on her end, uh, this notion of being able to persevere, to, to go for the long haul, and, and to have a courage, a calmness, a peace, a stability, but also on the receiving end of her, uh, realizing, man, this is, this is not what I expected. Now, that's the little experience of a, a four-year-old girl. But certainly, even us, no matter how old we are, whether we're in midlife or we're older, we're about to retire, or uh, we're, we're well into our uh, twilight years, steadfastness is, is hard to come by. First, both uh, within ourselves. How many times have we committed to some new discipline, to some new routine, New Year's always rolls around, and most of us have New Year's resolutions. How long do those commitments last? For those of us who are Christians here, in our devotion to the Lord, when, how many times have we said, Lord, I will be more blank this year? But then we quickly fall from that pursuit. But also, from without us, things that we can't control. Life has so many surprises and and so life sometimes feels like a game of whack-a-mole you know this game basically these little gophers pop up and poor kid here in the picture he can't even he's, he's not even tall enough and if he goes at it he'll he'll hurt his wrist but but life is is like these little things just popping up and we're just chasing after these priorities or surprises uh, tragedies just whatever it may be we're trying to make sense of it all and, and find some stability, find some calmness, some steadfastness. Now, as we come to Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, I want to draw out the central idea with this question. How does Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, call us to place our faith in Jesus? And on a quick tangent, in fact, this is the question that we should be able to answer every time we go into God's Word, every time we gather together to worship, any time you visit another church, you should be able to walk away with a concrete answer to this question. 
whatever passage you're looking at, how is this Scripture calling me to concretely place my faith in Jesus and to live that out? That's why we're here. To trust Jesus more. To experience His grace more. And so, what I believe Acts chapter 2 is calling us, how it's calling us to place our faith in Jesus is in this way. First, give to the crucified Jesus. Meaning Jesus who takes on all our sin, all our brokenness, all our weakness on the cross, give Him your sporadic devotion. All the failed attempts. All the times you thought you could be good enough and you weren't. You could be faithful enough and you fell from that. Give the crucified Jesus your sporadic devotion. And now instead, just as we've sung about today, receive and overflow the risen Jesus's. The risen Jesus's steadfast devotion to you. That is how you're going to experience in increasing measure the ability to go about your day with a steadfastness. To experience more and more each day whatever life throws at you, a consistency, an ability to keep moving forward, a perseverance in the right direction. Now, where do we see this central idea in the text? Just straight off the bat, I want you to notice as Luke describes what is going on here, Now remember, the Spirit of God was just poured out. And then Peter preached the first Christian sermon. And he called people to repent and be baptized, to receive the Spirit. And Scripture records that around 3,000 souls came to believe that day. And so in verse 41, that's where we pick up. And so those who received His Word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now I want you to notice this string of ands. That conjunction, and, 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 and. And we're meant to get this sense of this cause and effect, like a domino, a string of dominoes falling, a domino effect. And so as the Spirit filled these people and they placed their faith in Jesus, verse 42, and, and here's the central action, the central verb, and they devoted themselves. And that word devoted there carries the notion of steadfastness. Just a a daily consistency. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. And, cause and effect, awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done to the apostles. Verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple, and then jumping down to verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. When we come to Christ and we give Him our failings, when we come with the humble confession, I can't do it on my own. Even on my best day, I'm not steadfast perfectly. And we place that on Christ, the crucified Christ. And then by faith receive the life of Christ, the risen life of Christ. And He places this aspect of His righteousness on us, His steadfastness. Then we'll begin to increasingly live this out, not because we are straining and striving from our own human strength, but because we are experiencing the life of the Spirit and Christ's devotion itself. So how do we do this? 
you are the type who likes to take notes or follow a bulletin, it's there, uh, or follow an outline, it's there in your bulletins. So let's dive right into it. First, we need to overflow. It's all about overflowing God's goodness, His grace, Christ's steadfast devotion. Overflow His steadfast devotion to the apostles' teaching. It's very important to notice this, that as Scripture is describing this first beautiful scene of the life of the church, that the first habit, the first steadfast devotion that they're committing themselves to is the apostles' teaching. Now, why is this so important? Because we need to be aware of what I like to call natural drift. This summer, my boy went to his first uh, overnight boys' camp, and one of his adventures was to go out canoeing by himself with other peers, just boys his age, no adult to be with him. And so this is a picture of them. But what was funny is they first headed out this direction, and then I was walking by, and then I noticed this commotion of all these counselors and whatnot swimming and so forth and trying to get somewhere very far that direction. And it was my boy's canoe because they didn't understand this principle of natural drift. They were just fishing and they didn't realize that all along the way they were just drifting into the reeds and they were stuck and then crying out for help. Now, this is something that happens to us in our lives when it comes to our thinking and the way we look at life. If we're not intentional, some current in life, culture's current, or, or the voices that you are hearing at work or at home, just whatever words are, are being uh, thrown at you, they will cause you to drift a certain way if you're not intentionally trying to think a certain way. More and more, as we grow up in this age of Google and knowledge, it seems like all the knowledge of the world is at our fingertips, just a click away. In fact, even my kids, as they're growing up, their kids growing up, I think, most uh, steeped in this, this age of information and the Internet and Google. And, and just a natural, if they sense mom and dad don't know something, they'll actually say, they'll trump us, say, just Google it. Like, don't even try, just Google it, <laughs> right? And so kids are even growing up, just as a quick aside, when it comes to parenting, Google is outdoing us. But what still remains is the ability to uh, process all this information and to uh, synthesize it, understand it, diagnose it in a way that is good for our souls, in a way that still puts us on a good path of truth. So certainly there are massive currents in our life today and if we're not careful, there will be a natural drift to just think as everyone else does. And so in verse 42, it's so beautiful and challenging and reassuring here to see that the church, as they are birthed by the Spirit, they steadfastly devoted themselves first to the apostles' teaching. And Luke goes on to describe in verse 43, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Now, if you'll just follow along with me here, verse 42 is kind of like a table of contents for this whole passage. And what Luke describes was the holistic discipleship, the, the holistic life of the churches in verse 42. There were three major parts. First, they were devoted to the disciples' teaching, the, the apostles' teaching. 
And the word and there are the separators. So what's the next part? And the fellowship to the breaking of bread. That goes together. That's the third aspect, and we'll get into that in a moment. And then third, and the prayers. And then verses 43 to the end are extrapolating, are are just elaborating on these three parts. And so in verse 43, we see an elaboration of what it means to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. And so Luke includes this detail, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. This goes hand in hand with being devoted to the apostles' teaching. Why? Because these signs and wonders were a validation of God uniquely in this time in history, appointing and ordaining these 12 apostles to be the foundation of the church. These signs and wonders that were a sign of God's presence and power with them and His authorizing them to be writers of Scripture. And so, in another place, Paul, in his letter to the Christians in Ephesus, he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the households of God, verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And here is referring primarily first to the prophets of old. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Moses, David, these prophets that provided the first testament. And Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now, let me try to help you appreciate this. Concretely, specifically, what this means is that you and I, we can find confidence in God's definite, very intentional, definite plan of redemption. Let me use an analogy to to try to explain our church right now. We receive updates uh, very frequently from the Eglinton Crosstown Project. And in fact, future Laird Station is just about 30 steps uh, away from us. And we receive these uh, newsletters uh, that come in the mail. And they usually have a diagram like this where the next work will be happening. And these newsletters and updates are helpful uh, even for us as a church, as as a leadership, because we know... On certain days, parking won't be available. Or we can expect some extra rumbling and noise uh, if there's some digging and whatnot. And we can adjust to that. And so there's this definite overall plan. And this plan is we're being kept in step and being revealed one step at a time. And so it puts us at ease. It gives us confidence that this project is moving along, that there's an end somewhere down the road. Analogously, What God has done, the the whole point of Scripture is that He's given us His definite plan. Now, I say this humbly and and not as an expert, but in my personal reading of other religions, uh, holy writings, there's no definite plan. There's just moral codes. And what you need to do to try to attempt to earn God's favor and His forgiveness See, Christianity is, is, is not just a set of morals. It is this wonderful story that God has been writing from the beginning of creation. And He has revealed what He's going to do, how He's going to do it. And He's been faithful at 
key moments in history, through all history, God has been involved. And he has been setting out and accomplishing his definite plan. And so here, the church being devoted to the apostles' teaching is another instance of God being faithful to his definite plan and appointing these apostles to, be, to write scripture and set the foundation of the church. Second, we need to overflow steadfast devotion to the fellowship and the breaking of bread. Now, to put this in context, I pulled these stats off uh, the internet uh, from StatCan, uh, Statistics Canada. And uh, before we get into this stat, first of all, kudos to Canada. If StatsCan is correct, 85% of Canadians over 15 years old made some donation to some sort of charitable cause. So overall, that, that is, I don't have other numbers in other countries uh, to compare to, but it seems like that is astounding. So, yay Canada. Now, this specific stat, primary donors, primary donor is defined as the 10% of donors who give 66% of all the donations. So it's just a small 10% that's giving the bulk the, the big donors. So these primary donors were more actively involved in their religion. In 2013, 54% of these donors had participated in religious activities at least once a week, compared with 14% of other donors and 8% of non-donors. The stat right below it, the summary, uh, stats can explains, when asked about the reasons for donating, the vast majority, 91% of donors said they felt compassion towards people in need. The other reasons often cited include the idea of helping a cause in which they personally believe, 88%, and wanting to make a contribution to their community, 82%. Now, why, why do I set this context? Because first, let, let's be encouraging. This is great that we as Canadians are, are so generous with our finances. But as we turn to Acts 42, I want you to notice, and they devoted themselves, and, and sorry, quickly, it, it's, it's neat that there's a correlation between people who are more religious and greater giving. But as we look at verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostle teaching and the fellowship. That's not a mistake. That is a perfect, accurate translation of the original language. It is a definite article, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and we'll see later in the prayers. But here's what I want you to notice. What Luke is trying to get us to see is that there is something distinctly unique about Christian fellowship. You don't need to be Christian to have fellowship. There are, you go to meetup.com, and right now, just in our midst, there are hundreds of gatherings going on. Good examples of community. But here Luke is saying, no, there's something distinct about this fellowship and this breaking of bread, meaning just sharing a meal. In verse 44, he elaborates, and all who believed were together. There's the first distinction. Their motivation, what was bringing them together was a faith specifically in Christ. And this faith brought them together and they had all things 
in common. This word in common there, it shares the same root as the word fellowship in, in the Greek koina, in common, and koinonia is fellowship. Now look how Luke continues to describe as coming together because of faith in Christ and having things in common. What did it look like? And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all. Now, I need to say this because at times a criticism towards this passage will be that, you see, Christianity is calling for communism. That everyone just shares everyone's possessions. There are no boundaries. But no, if, if you look at this verse, Luke is very clear. There was private ownership. Their possessions. And they had every choice to make about their possessions, what they would do. But why were they selling their possessions and choosing to be generous? Because as any had need. And so there was a very deliberate reason. It wasn't just this lack of boundaries and uh, this authoritarian, dictarian mandated, you have, everyone has to share everything. As any had need, that was the deliberate reason. As there was a need, now we recognize what God has given us. And as a steward, I want to make a choice because of faith in Christ to be able to share this for the benefit of those who need it. And so in verse 46, and day by day, again, this notion of steadfast devotion, attending the temple together. Now I want you to notice that Luke puts this picture of being willing to uh, depart ways with certain possessions for the benefit of others. He puts it right adjacent to worship. Remember the whole sort of domino effect. And so day by day, attending the temple, meaning they're going to worship God, to be uh, reminded of His graces and His goodness and praising Him and, and coming away just overflowing with gladness. And then, right there adjacent, as they are worshiping and going to their homes and sharing a meal together. And one of my favorite expressions in Scripture, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts. Even their eating their meal was a worship. Let's just pause there. When's the last time you intentionally stop at the beginning of a meal and, and you stop to recognize that everything on the table there was ultimately God's blessing? I love actually more than just even saying a prayer per se, the traditional grace, bowing our heads and saying a prayer. I love, I enjoy raising a glass and saying a prayer as a toast. Because usually when you, you, you make a toast naturally at weddings or parties, there's attached to it always naturally a sense of gladness and celebration. Sometimes our, our prayers, for some reason, I don't know where it all went this way, but, but our prayers can feel somber. And so my favorite way to praise God and thank God for this meal is to make a toast. And, and so if you've eaten with me, you've, you've probably uh, experienced that. But here, Luke making it clear that even our eating, our meals are meant to be worshipful. David in Psalm 63, he says something very similar. I'm picking up in verse 3. Because 
your steadfast love. Meaning starting with God's consistency, God's devotion, daily devotion to you, no matter how guilty you feel, no matter how bad of a day you're having, and even no matter how successful you are, that you are never so great that God, you don't need God. God is steadfastly pursuing you, pouring out His love to you, and David says, is better than life. And to continue to elaborate on that, jumping to verse 5, he says, my soul will be satisfied, meaning with your steadfast love, O Lord, that is better than life, as with fat and rich food. And so I can picture David, even as king. In fact, actually this moment, he was in the desert wandering. And, and he was thinking, God, you're more important to me than even the rich food that I, and the delicacies that I was privy to in the king's court. Now, let's try to bring it into focus here and make it very relevant for you and me. Here's the distinction. Here's why it's the fellowship, the breaking of bread, in contrast to how the world and other religions uh, might be motivated to be generous and, and, and enjoy blessings. When Jesus' grace gets a hold of you, you first become a glad receiver. That's the difference. The Christian, the starting point is first receiving. Even this past week, uh, a non-Christian friend of mine, um, I I, I tried to show him just an act of kindness, but he was very much, no, no, I, I can't receive this. And at times, for some reason, there's a pride in us where you know, we have too much ego or pride. It, it, it takes humbling to receive grace. But where the Christian's identity begins, our Christian journey begins, is first to gladly receive God's love, God's forgiveness, God's strength. To be able to humbly admit, I can't do this on my own. I can't save myself by my own righteousness. And then letting that trickle through everything in life, going to work, being a parent, being a boyfriend, being a girlfriend, being just whatever role in life, to depend on God for His grace, His strength. And then, as we are a glad receiver, then we become a generous giver. The gospel of grace says we overflow good works because we are already loved. That's the, character, the distinct characteristic of the fellowship, the breaking of bread of Christ's followers versus religiosity in a performance-driven world which say we do good works because we hope to be loved. The gospel of grace says Christ, it's Christ who's good enough. He's good enough. He's my joy. He's my love that is better than life. Versus religiosity and a performance-driven world which say, I am good enough. A lot of people, even in my own conversations with uh, people who, who aren't Christ followers and their motivation isn't so much grace and their charity, and when we have spiritual conversations, they say, well, I, I feel like I'm a good enough person. 
And they actually usually say, I donate to this and this and this cause. And so there's this sense where we dupe ourselves, that we can stand before God with the statement, I'm good enough. I've done this list of good deeds. But the gospel of grace says no. The the preeminent, the, the, the truth, the foundation, the cornerstone is that Christ alone is good enough. So to summarize Christian fellowship, um, first, it's a worshipful, daily, overflowing. Second, sharing. Third, of all of God's graces, recognizing that it was all from Him. Fourth, material and spiritual. It's so great to see here that in the church, this first church, that it wasn't just a spirituality, this, this transcendent, vague spirituality, but it was very concrete. It met people's daily needs, physical needs, and toward one another, for better, for worse, in sickness and health, for richer, for poorer. And so, just as another plug, this week we're starting up our new communities. And in these new communities is where we uh, primarily want to experience living out the fellowship and the breaking of bread. And so just as a quick plug, if you haven't signed up already, it's not too late. Um, yeah, and I, and I hope you will join a new community experience, God's grace in this way. Finally then, third, we need to overflow steadfast devotion to the prayers. Why? Why the, the prayers? Why do we need to keep praying? Because prayer is a watershed act of faith. When you take that moment, whether it's to close your eyes, to look up to heaven with your eyes open, to, to just, meaning in your, in your mind, in your soul, you take that step to actually utter a thought. You're taking a giant leap of faith to believe that God is who He says He is. That this Jesus who walked this earth in history and, and having faith that He ascended into heaven, that He poured out His Spirit, that these words in Scripture are true. It's an act of faith. And so in verse 42, Luke describes at the end that they were devoted to the prayers. What were the prayers? We don't know specifically, but most likely it was the Psalms. Most likely it was the prayers that Jesus taught him to pray, taught his disciples to pray. The prayer that Sam modeled his prayer for the congregation after today, the Lord's Prayer. And the elaboration of the prayers in verse 47 is that they were praising God and having favor with all the people. And so as we stay dependent on God by faith through this specific act of continuing to pray to Him, to have this conversation, to to petition to Him with thanksgiving, as we continually seek to bow our hearts to the Spirit to say, show me more of who Jesus is, we cannot help but come out praising God and having greater hope no matter how dire your circumstance. And this notion of having favor with all the people, it's the power of prayer and staying dependent on God, which He will use to continue to empower our witness. We need to stay abiding in Christ through prayer and filled with the Spirit 
And He will empower us to have an effective witness amongst uh, our communities and our city and have favor with all the people. I love how John Piper puts it. When they got in touch with each other, meaning the church, and as they fellowship, came together, they got in touch with God. And they prayed. And so what empowers us to be steadfastly devoted? This passage ends, and the Lord added. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is a wonderful balance, another description of what it means to follow Jesus. First we see it's, it's there, actually in verse 41, the Spirit fills them, and, and so the Spirit initiates and gives them this energy to devote themselves. But it's their choice as well. Their action. Their faithfulness. But it's God's grace working in them. But then Luke brings it full circle to say, and it's all about the Lord and His work. It's the Lord who continues to add. And so what empowers us to be steadfastly devoted? Union with Christ. Having faith in Jesus. Just walking with Jesus by grace through faith. Because ultimately, Jesus himself is the apostles' teaching. He's the point of all the scripture and the words we read. It's about meeting him. It's about falling more and more in love with him and his beauties and perfections and his grace and forgiveness and his, his steadfast devotion. It's about looking to Him who is so steadfast Himself, carrying the cross to the last very step, being nailed on there for you and me. Because Jesus Himself is our fellowship. He being enthroned in heaven and having all blessings in the universe, spiritual and material, all blessings, He koinoniaed with us. He chose to share with us and come down to this earth. And He, in the most beautiful, ultimate sense, is our bread. He gave us this symbol to break the bread, to be reminded of who He is and what He's done for us. And Jesus Himself is praying for you right now. Romans 8.34, Hebrews 7 says it black and white. He is praying for you, interceding for you at the right hand of the Father right now. So don't be discouraged. If anyone is going through a rough patch right now, be encouraged. Be confident once again that Jesus himself is devoted steadfastly to you. And as you cling to him, as we give the crucified Jesus our sporadic devotion, and as we receive and overflow the risen Jesus' steadfast devotion to you and me, we will experience an increasing measure this living out of all His graces and doing His good works. Amen.